You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. Artificial intelligence is changing the world. And we've been watching it pretty closely on Beyond Infinity over the last five years. And I've put together a collection of pieces that we've done relating to artificial intelligence, some of the arguments in favour, some of the arguments against, some of the, um, the scary uses of artificial intelligence, some of the ways that artificial intelligence promises to change the world for good. To start this compilation, I thought I would go back to December 2015 when we recorded Rise of the Machines. Artificial intelligence is rapidly improving and a group of tech entrepreneurs have formed OpenAI, a startup focused on the development of ethical artificial intelligence. And Elon Musk was involved in this startup. It's one of his pet projects, one of his little side projects, if you like, along with the, the boring company and Neuralink. In January 2016, we broadcast Inceptionism and the Strange Art produced by artificial neural networks. This was about how computers can be trained to recognize objects and how this sheds light on how the human brain works and shows how we don't fully understand artificial intelligence. And this is one of the issues with artificial intelligence is explainability, as you'll hear. But some of the artwork produced when... um, AI algorithms are applied to objects is really quite bizarre. You get some some crazy psychedelic, almost um, dreamlike or or sort of drug-induced results. So um, it's an interesting one. And, and there are some images on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. If you want to search for this particular podcast, you'll find resources under the title Inceptionism and the Strange Art Produced by Artificial Neural Networks. And then in... August 2016, we recorded Ready for Skynet. This was a discussion about uh, the Terminator 2 director, James Cameron, uh, and his concerns that reality is catching up to science fiction. While tech titans Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg traded barbs over the potential dangers of artificial intelligence. In July 2017, we broadcast a story about what happens when machines become smarter than humans. This is an interview with Dr. Ian Storey of RMIT's School of Business, IT and Logistics. Ian marvels at the great promise and serious threats of artificial intelligence and big data. Are we ready for the future post the singularity? Staying with Ian Storey, in July 2017, we discussed AI quantum computing, and the singularity. Ian spoke about the origins and growing applications of artificial intelligence and deep neural networks. He discussed the potential for secure communication through quantum cryptography and hints of the multiverse through quantum entanglement. In September 2018, we broadcast Predicting Your Choices Before You've Made Up Your Mind. And this was about researchers at Auckland University of Technology's Knowledge Engineering and Discovery Research Institute and how they've come up with an AI model which predicts choices made by the subconscious mind 
before you're even aware you've made a decision. The breakthrough has huge implications for marketing and advertising. In March 2019, we discussed artificial intelligence's double-edged sword to highlight potential advantages and disadvantages of AI. A website called thispersondoesnotexist.com displays believable images of AI-generated people who don't exist. Meanwhile, OpenAI's GP2 deep fakes for text can produce believable stories with no connection to reality or truth, revealing AI's mastery and comprehension of language. And Summit, the world's most powerful supercomputer, is using machine learning to help with long-term weather forecasting and earlier warnings of storms and floods. In March 2019, we broadcast a discussion titled AI for Mass Surveillance. This was about some of the downside risk of artificial intelligence. Cybersecurity experts warned the world's democracies should fear the development of artificial intelligence as a means to automate control in authoritarian states. And then finally, rounding out, look back over five years of Beyond Infinity's take on artificial intelligence, its uses for good and ill. In September 2019, we discussed how artificial intelligence has been proven to fast-track technical breakthroughs and human progress by sifting through millions of scientific papers and finding connections that humans may have missed. But the need for explainability is vital, yet not always available from AI analysis. So I hope you enjoy this compilation of work we've done since 2015 covering AI. Researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the New York University and the University of Toronto have reported a new type of learning which they've developed in which a computer vision program outperformed a group of humans in identifying handwritten characters based on a single example. Artificial intelligence is getting to the point where it actually can rival human abilities. Mm -hmm. And it's really exciting. The new approach, which is known as Bayesian program learning, is different from current machine learning technologies known as deep neural networks. They created basically a language with its own characters by just showing a few of these characters to the program that developed, they were able to teach it that language and actually learn the language really quickly. So it was almost becoming self-aware and being able to read a character and then assume then what that letter is when reading what a variation of that yeah, letter? Yeah, I guess it's a test of performance, really, yeah. of how, how quickly, and humans can do it quite quickly. They reckon that children and infants can pick up a language or can pick up a symbol. You know, it might be just learning how to spell their own name, yep. but they can very quickly work out that by the, association the, the letters yeah. and, and matching the image with the sound and then the meaning most of the time humans are way faster than computers at doing this but this new technique which has been developed by these researchers 
they have actually been able to accelerate the speed and it's been put down to a few things. One is network performance, but also processor performance. So it's being technology driven. But I've experienced this just through Facebook. I uploaded a whole heap of photos and I didn't even need to tag people in it because of the facial recognition that Facebook has built into the system. Mm. And it automatically was picking up the right person. So it would actually then find the face and then tag the correct person in. And it was only a couple of extra people that I had to then go and tag. So on a simple in a basic form this is what AI is able to do it's able to recognize certain things and in this case we're talking about characters we're already at that point where it recognizes so much and is able to do so much so where will we be in six months 12 months or you know in a few years time it's just an incredible space to be in at this stage yeah there's, a, there's an interesting article in the New York Times and we'll post a link to our site one of the things that's happened recently is they had the ImageNet large-scale visual recognition challenge, which pits teams of researchers at academic government and corporate laboratories against one another to design programs to both classify and detect objects. And it was won this year by a group of researchers at the Microsoft Research Laboratory in Beijing. So there's been incentives for companies to accelerate the development of this, and there's all sorts of applications for it. The Toyota Motor Corporation has announced a five-year billion-dollar investment to create a research center based next to Stanford University to focus on artificial intelligence and robotics. And an academic conference, the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference in Montreal, doubled in size since the previous year and has attracted a growing list of brand name corporate sponsors, including Apple for the first time. So AI really is starting to sort of take front and center stage. Because this is the sort of stuff that's now feeding the autonomous vehicles, for example. Cameras, whether they be infrared or visual cameras, that they're actually looking at the roads and the surroundings and able to determine what's actually happening. So we've seen in the uh, the recent Tesla updates with driverless vehicles, the automated vehicle will pick up the car in front of you if it's slowing down and therefore we'll interpret that that this you know your car or that your particular tesla needs to slow down that's one example but that's how the programming how this artificial intelligence is working its way into the everyday technology that, that we own and one of the concerns is that if this sort of technology gets to a point where it might be misused for example you know we've already got predator unmanned planes flying over the Middle East that can fire off a missile at mm. a target that's designated. But at the moment, a human has to control Press the it. Button. To, and the concern is that if you had an artificial intelligence network that was given the ability to actually make the decision to fire, mm. that's a scary proposition. And that's something that a lot of people are concerned about, including the Tesla and SpaceX chief Elon Musk. He's been quite vocal about the risks of AI and particularly in terms of weapons usage. Yep. It's actually just been announced this week that a company is being formed with Musk as the co-chairman and it's backed by other prominent Silicon Valley leaders such as PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel and the boss of Netflix, Reed Hastings. It's called OpenAI and its goal is to help shape the future potential of AI to ensure that it serves humanity and doesn't yeah. actually start doing things like firing off missiles yeah. on its own accord. It's, it's, it's Terminator. The, the machines become self-aware yeah, and exactly. start uh, operating on their own terms. It's science fiction yeah. becoming science fact. We don't want that. We do want the robots or we do want these digital solutions to be able to make a number of decisions for us. But if those decisions are to cause harm or worse, uh, death, we need to take a step back. We need to have some regulation around that or be able to monitor or override that so that we don't have a terrible outcome. This is a great thing that Elon and the others are now going into because 
how far do we go? What is that point? What is the, the end game? What do we really want? And if we give too much power to these machines, then we take away some of our own liberties, I think. Yeah, and their idea is to make it open. So the technology is there for everyone to use. Yep. There aren't just elites that get access to stuff, that it's there serving humanity and accessible to the largest possible number of people. Elon Musk actually added his name to a thing that was signed earlier this year. It was a coalition of more than 20,000 researchers and experts, including Stephen Hawking, Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple, and Noam Chomsky, calling for a ban on autonomous weapons that can fire on targets without human intervention due to the capabilities of AI systems. Elon Musk has got a bit of a history of being concerned about where AI could lead us. And so this open AI initiative is... It's basically going to function as a business, but it's a business which has some values centered around making sure that the technology is not abused. They've set it up with a billion dollars to fund the whole thing and get it rolling. So it's not going to be short of money and it's got some very influential backers behind it. If you're looking for predictions for 2016 and beyond, AI would seem to be right up on the list at the moment. For example, the new Raspberry Pi, the $5 Pi, many more adopters will take that on and build their own programs around it. So robotics, in one hand, has got to a really great point where the actual mechanics of things works rather smoothly. It can do a lot of things. But then if you then add in that artificial intelligence where it can actually think about what to do next how much power do you give that how much power do you want to give away i know that if it is going to be a drone flying over any country you don't want it to give the power just to bomb something that it considers to be a target when that in actual fact may not be correct we must build into these systems somewhere to protect innocent lives or really just life in general so that's the open ai initiative it's a not-for-profit research company dedicated to advancing the science and ethics of artificial intelligence hopefully we won't see a day when uh, we have to fear the rise of the Terminators. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to the advancements over the next 12 months and longer. And maybe this time next year, we should just do a rehash and, uh, and just see how far we'll come along and how, how this is progressing with Elon and the others. Absolutely. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. Inceptionism is a neural network. It's been nicknamed Inceptionism or even Deep Dreams. It's a very interesting little research project that Google's got going on the side. It may wind up being nothing. If nothing else, it's sort of producing some almost hallucinogenic images. So what it is, is it's taking algorithms where they train a computer to be able to identify an object Mm -hmm. or, for example, a bird or a dog, that sort of thing. And, And the more that they layer this knowledge up, the more accurate the computer becomes. What's interesting is when you start tweaking with the algorithms Mm -hmm. and playing around with things and even doing it in reverse where you, you give it the end result or halfway through these multiple layers that are required to train the computer to recognize, say, a dog and then feed that back into it yes. rather than letting it progress. So tell the computer you expect to see dogs in this picture and then it'll look for dogs where it might be a mountain landscape, for example. Exactly. And so there are all sorts of clouds. It's like we've all stared up at the sky and looked at <laughs> and seen faces in clouds, which is to do with image recognition. You know, yep. Our brains are designed to look for patterns. They actually don't understand fully how a human is able to say, okay, that's a Cocker Spaniel, that's a Great Dane, that's a Shih Tzu. You know, they just, they're not able to actually know yep. how we can do that. It seems to be like the scans and stuff they've done of human brains when we've been in the process of identifying things, they can see that certain little clusters of neurons light up 
when it's a terrier as opposed to a poodle, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Yep. How that works is really interesting. So they've been experimenting with computers and there's an interesting article in the November-December issue of American Scientist. If you happen to look at that, there's a, there's a website also, americanscientist.org, which has got stuff. And you can also go to googleresearch.blogspot.com.au has an article on Inceptionism going deeper into neural networks. And we'll put a link up on the Facebook yeah, page Yeah, and it's, it's just, yeah. it's, I mean, it'd be of interest to artists because, you know, some of these images that it comes out with, there's a great scene of, it's a photograph that's been taken out of the latest Mad Max film, Fury Road that's had this image recognition in reverse algorithm run through it. And that's pretty bizarre as well. I mean, they've taken paintings by old masters and stuff by Hieronymus Bosch, which was always pretty weird and trippy anyway. That's 400, 500 years ago. Well, they've put that through this algorithm and it comes out with all sorts of weird things. You see dogs' heads, eyes everywhere. Dogs seem to be in it. And all the images that have been used to train these neural networks by Google, for example, have actually been drawn from the internet. Mm -hmm. And apparently... Cats are everywhere on the internet. People post their moggies everywhere. But curiously, the images that are coming out of these algorithms don't have any cats. They've got lots of eyes. They've got heaps of dogs. It's a weird thing. And um, Is this just purely for the advancement of understanding images and trying to learn about that? Or is this more of a, let's see what we can do with it? I think it's a combination of a few things. It may be a passing fad. It may be something that reveals a lot about the way the human brain works. Mm -hmm. It may be something that leads to better algorithms for image recognition by computers. Mm -hmm. Just quoting from the American Scientist article, computers have lately become quite good at classifying images so good that expert human classifiers have to work hard to match their performance because these computer systems are products of human design it seems we should be able to say exactly how they work but no it turns out computational vision systems are almost as inscrutable as biological ones they are deep neural networks modeled on structures in the brain and their expertise is not pre-programmed but rather learned from examples what they know about images is stored in huge tables of numeric coefficients which defy direct human comprehension. So they don't fully understand why you're getting these results. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, I mean, there's not really much more to look, say they're, apart they're from quite interesting. kind of curious. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting to look at. Maybe for those who like these pictures might want to put a framed one up on the wall because you can, I believe you can create your own as well, can't you? There's open source software that yeah. is, which you can download from yeah. Google yep. from their neural networks research group. You can actually run your own. You can feed in your own images and see what you get out the other end. Yep. I mean, that'd be a great thing for us to experiment with. But what we'll do is we'll post some of these before and after images that they've got where they've taken a photo, say, of a, a mountaintop or a rocky crag. And then they've put that through. They show successive stages through of layers through, as the algorithm gets more and more intense. And then you wind up with something that is completely different from the rocky crag. It's basically sort of like a, a monkey full of eyes and a face and weird clouds yes. anyway, I mean look great sort of psychedelic stuff if you were coming up with an album for the 1960s you know <laughs> an album cover or something this would have been perfect yep. and more information google research.blogspot.com.au and you'll find out about these artificial neural networks that are kind of sparking a bit of attention and people's imagination at the moment <laughs> You're listening to Beyond Infinity. I thought I'd talk a bit about the dangers of rampant artificial intelligence. And there's a bit of a debate going on. There's a bit of a a kind of high-profile debate between the two tech billionaires or gazillionaires, one being the owner of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and the other being Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX fame. One is, uh, in the case of Facebook, they're apparently the biggest investor in AI in Silicon Valley. 
in the case of Elon Musk, he's actually got a business that he's funded himself. It's a not-for-profit. It's called OpenAI. Its mission is to develop AI but do it in a safe way. Mm. So one of the concerns is that you wind up with a situation like in the 1991 sci-fi classic Terminator 2, directed by James Cameron, Canadian film director, did also Avatar and Titanic. Just incidentally, he's actually working on four Avatar sequels that are scheduled to reach cinemas from 2020 to 2025. Mm -hmm. That's in production now. But anyway, James Cameron came out and uh, just sort of was commenting on how the Terminator film that he directed, Terminator 2, was, you know, was potentially a very scary prediction of, of, uh, you know, how AI might go wrong. And, And I think they're in the process of doing a restoration and 3D conversion of Terminator to Judgment Day, and that's going to be released in cinemas later this year in August. James Cameron said, when we live in a world of constant surveillance and iPhones that can be tapped by intelligence agencies and predator drones in the skies and serious discussions at high levels about the ethics of robotic combat platforms having autonomous kill capability, you're talking about Terminators and you're talking about Skynet. That's according to James Cameron. He goes on to say, how do we keep an emergent machine intelligence, what they call strong AI, that's equivalent to or greater than human consciousness from just deciding that it doesn't need us anymore, that we're just an impediment. I think, you know, we, we as humans can build these fail-safes into it, but then as soon as the code recognises, the artificial intelligence recognises, well, this doesn't help me, and then they turn that part off, those kill switches off, that's when they reach the singularity, and that's become, you know, we're talking Terminator-type territory there. Yeah, yeah. well, as James Cameron describes it as a, a slate wiper for the planet. Yeah. You know, just going on just a little bit into uh, the, the kind of discussion that's been going on between... Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. Elon Musk has actually described uh, Zuckerberg as with as only limited knowledge of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been sort of trading barbs on Twitter a little bit about this. There are different scientists who come out f- saying different things about this. There are naysayers and there are people who yeah. uh, Mark Zuckerberg regards as, uh, he describes them as irresponsible for being against AI, which he sees as with enormous potential and could solve the world's problems. But, you know, people like Bill Gates, people like... Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking yeah. is another another well-known prominent scientist. They're both urging a lot of caution about how AI is treated and how it's developed. OpenAI is a really good website to have a look at. We'll post links for it. It's Musk's not-for-profit AI company. It's actually looking more at artificial general intelligence. And uh, according to that website, it says it'll be the most significant technology ever created by humans. And OpenAI's mission is to build safe AGI, that's uh, artificial general intelligence, and ensure AGI's benefits are as widely and evenly distributed as possible. We expect AI technologies to be hugely impactful in the short term, but their impact will be outstretched by that of the first AGIs. They've got full-time staff of 60 researchers and engineers. They're focusing on long-term research, working on problems that require us to make fundamental advances in AI capabilities. By being at the forefront of the field, we can influence the conditions under which AGI is created. As Alan Kay said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And I actually had a look at that OpenAI website. It's got some interesting stuff. It's actually got various examples of research they're doing on specific sort mm-hmm. of problems. Mm-hmm. There's even software and open open source software that you can download and play around with yourself. Yep. But it's all about sort of how you tr- how you trick AI. You know, how, how if you've got an AI system and it's there to learn, how can you sort of lead it down the garden path? And this is partly one of the fears of having very powerful AI systems is that if they were able to be tricked or hacked, they've been given enough power, then you could have some pretty dangerous results. You know, if you've got AI powering drones yes. and, and they can be tricked in terms of their target selection to 
to take you out instead of the enemy, you know? Well, it, it is the age-old sort of question. I mean, surely there's amazing purposes and uses for AI, but then there's also the, the malicious intent as well, which can do more harm. So this is where, you know, if it's continue to create it and it's unregulated, uncontrolled, and it does these, you know, big leaps over the course of every year, then once it gets into the wrong hands, those people or many people can develop this code and then just unleash it on, on the world. And as you say, you know, earlier before with uh, James Cameron and Skynet, it's not so inconceivable. We can look at it as a fantasy uh, in a movie, but we also looking at how technology has grown over the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years and where we are today. Mm. Imagine where AI will be in 30 years' time. We, yeah. we recently bought a little toy puppy. I think it's called Snuggles. Mm. You know, it's it, a computer-type one, isn't well, it? No, it's, no, no. It's, it's, a, it's a $70, quite expensive, China-made soft toy mm-hmm. that barks and that, yep. that closes its eyes. It, it chews on a, you know, you give it a bottle of milk and it sort of rolls over and it, and it goes to sleep and its eyes open. It's sort of cute. But I was just thinking to myself when I was looking at that and how captivated this child is by it. Mm-hmm. You know, you imagine 10 years down the track and you apply a bit of AI to that, you'll have a robotic dog that, it's you know, is like exactly yeah. like a dog, except you can switch it off and put it in the cupboard and charge it overnight and, and leave it, you know, in a cupboard when you go away. Yep. You know, all the sort of benefits. Don't have to that, feed it. You don't have to feed it yeah. anything. You just, just recharge it. Give it a bit of electricity power. now yeah. and again and then it's happy as Larry and it's, almost indistinguishable from a dog. Now, I think there'll always be certain things that biology serves up, which are, which no matter how good you get with AI, yeah. you, you know, certain sort of intangibles that you just can't well, We're talking about get um, to. robotic bees, weren't we, about, you know, pollinating plants. But, mm. you know, a bee is a highly tuned creature. We don't need to be creating little robotic bees to be able to replicate that. Just save the bees is the key message. So there will be certain activities or certain things mm. that it doesn't really make sense to change to some kind of automated robotic process. Mm. But but there will be certainly others, where, you know, whether it might be dangerous activities such as um, working environments. Mm. It would be better to send machines in. Mm. Looking at Fukushima at the moment, they've got people that are going in to clean that up mm. uh, and doing. Sort of, but they've also got machines that are going in to help clean that up. So there will be a dangerous environments that need to automated robotics. Yep. Just back to Elon Musk for a moment. He's on the record of saying, "I don't love the idea of being a house cat." envisaging the creation of neural lacing that magnifies people's brain power by linking them directly to computing capabilities. Now, this is another little one of his multitude of investments that he's got. He's into cautious use of AI and making sure that, you know, we don't have AI that sort of outstrips us. Mm-hmm. He believes that artificial intelligence is a terrifying problem and a threat to human civilization. He's arguing recently to legislators in America uh, of both Democrat and Republican background that the technology be regulated sooner rather than later because the risks are there and, and are real enough that safeguards need to be put in place before it's too late. Uh, he, but he has got this business, I think it's called Neuralink, and it will have the potential, if AI gets too smart, it will have the potential to level the playing field a bit by enabling people to directly access processing power and perhaps even download memories for storage. Mm. So we get wired into a computer, we share our brains... Yep computing power if you mm-hmm. like we augment it with a computer and maybe that is our key to so the matrix you're talking counterbalancing about, yeah. the effect <laughs> of ai i know look you keep going back to science fiction whether it's terminator 2 the matrix it is interesting well, art life you know yep it'll be very interesting to see whether elon musk has proved right that this is potentially a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization just a reminder that on our website we had a chat with dr ian story from rmit school of business it and logistics and there's a few different interviews with him published recently one of them which directly relates to this is what happens when machines become smarter than humans mm-hmm. 
You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. So we have Dr. Ian Storey, who's a lecturer in information systems at RMIT in the studio. Great to have you here, Ian. To get back to Kurtzweil, for him, the logical conclusion is that at some point, there's going to be so much computation that it won't be able to be understood by us. That AI will be like magic. What Kurzweil does, which is useful, is that he emphasises the role of geometric growth. And in fact, he has, if you look at the curve, it's geometric, geometric. So if you plot on log paper, it gives you another log graph. So the increase in the rate at which computation is is expanding mm. the complexity of the computation is geometric which humans find hard to visualize anyway and it seems it might be geometric geometric there are hardware issues and i don't think it just quantum computing but maybe nanotechnology could also help in this direction mm-hmm. so single states in single electrons maybe or at least single atoms stored so I think we've got a fair way to go with Moore's law yet right. with the, with different possibilities. I think we're down the end of the transistor road, but who knows. When it reaches that point, then all bets are off. What does it mean for us? Where are we going from here? And we can see some of the things already that are happening with technology, with automation. And I think it pays to speculate on where this could go. It pays us all to think a bit about where this could go because mm. it affects our our livelihoods there's a lot of concern that not only blue collar jobs are going to be lost to automated systems which which use ai and deep artificial neural networks but also quite a few white collar jobs as well some of the articles that i've read in preparation for today have sort of suggested that the only things that that the average person would be able to do is, is things like caring for the elderly, things that, that computers just won't ever be able to do, that, that require sort of personal empathy and that sort of thing. Or alternatively, the, the jobs, the sort of high-end jobs that will remain will be so rarefied and so will require such high skills and years of university training that there aren't really that many people who will necessarily be able to do those jobs. So it is creating potentially an issue of what the hell is humanity going to do Bill Gates has come out and said, said that uh, robots should be taxed. And one of the reasons he's saying that is that, you know, if you're going to wipe out jobs, then you need to actually compensate governments who are going to have to pay welfare to look after those people who used to have paying jobs. That's exactly right. What do we do when all the jobs that we've done before, or almost all of them, are obsolete? Mm, it's a concern. And it, it's sort of like all this stuff's happening and people aren't quite aware of, of how quickly it's happening and, and what the implications are. I think the CSIRO came out and said that by 2030, so about less than 15 years away, 40% of jobs in Australia will be gone. And that's, that's a sort of a conservative estimate. 40%, mm. yeah. There will still be a need for people to look after these machines and make sure they don't run amok. You know, you'll need a human somewhere in, in the line of looking at information security at least for a while i think mm. so there are some jobs that are created by it, but not many mm. what worries me is i think we've talked before about the education that's appropriate for people in this new environment 
to some extent, scientific education is necessary for a good economy. So any economy that hasn't been subject to war, that has focused on good education, especially good scientific education, has had factories and a burgeoning economy because of technology. Technology doesn't necessarily follow economy. Economy can follow technology Hmm. to the point where it's needed for a good economy. The issue that I'm worried about is that when AI becomes so innovative itself that it can innovate better than humans, even education at scientific level could become less of a a need for the economy Mm. because the AI can handle it. Now, we're talking, you know... Down the track. Down the track, Mm. yeah. So this is a threat at all levels. How well do you think Australia is going in making progress towards becoming a nation of innovators? One of the things that Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia, said when he took over that job, that Australia needs to innovate, needs to concentrate on STEM, the the scientific and mathematical and technology-based learning. And you're a lecturer at RMIT in information systems. Do you see much progress towards that or it's a fairly flat area at the moment? Are we just training people who are going to take the skills back overseas where they came from or...? I'm a bit more cynical. I think the past has shown that great innovations that occur here go overseas. Mm. They're not really funded or supported Mm. by government at the level they should have been. Mm. I'm not picking sides here, Labor or Liberal. If you remember Bob Hawke and the multifunction polis, Mm. did that eventuate? No. Mm. And we've had lots and lots of innovations that have occurred within Australia for funding needed to go overseas. Mm. Until I see a substantial change in direction, I know there's a lot of talk and there is money around for certain changes in for research. But when it comes to converting these into commercial realities, I don't see that happening Mm. here. So we need to have much more of an emphasis. I think Israel is a good example of a country, a small country. I think the government matches dollar for dollar private investment or venture capital that goes into a a homegrown invention or innovation. So that kind of thing we need to be doing more of. We need to be putting the funding in to stop these things being forced overseas. Absolutely. Yeah. And, And we need to look at if they're about to go overseas, what keeps them here? Yep. What sort of funding would keep them here? Not to measure every scientific advance on how much funding it it eventually produces but on how much funding it potentially produces to do some risk taking with some advances that look like they could be heading in in the right direction yeah yep. so I, I think for example nanotech or even just microtech would be good for us to get involved in hmm. looking at robotic control which is what my phd was on trying to make cheaper arms with finer movement My PhD was actually on suspension, but basically that was one of the applications of the concept. There needs to be a measuring of possible outputs, not just predictable outputs. Yep, which involves risk-taking. Yeah. Can we go back a little bit more to artificial intelligence deep neural networks? As we've said, that they can be used in voice assistance. They can even produce very strange art. You may have seen some of this stuff. It's very odd-looking art. It's sort of almost psychedelic. Yes, Uh, if you look up deep learning 
artistic or art. Yeah, you'll find it all. Yeah, and yep. it's oh, it's scary. Mm. It just is disturbing to look at. Yep. I don't know what you felt. It's seeing uh, eyes, eyes everywhere, uh, cats' heads everywhere. Oh, gives you bad dreams. I yeah, it's, it's, it's odd. Google, I think, has got a, a unit that's devoted to that, and, and you can find, it's, as Ian's just said, you can find lots of uh, examples of that weird art that's produced by artificial neural networks. We're talking to Dr. <laughs> Ian Story. He's a lecturer at RMIT in Information Systems. What happens when machines become smarter than humans? There's a problem called the black box problem. I think this is a way to, to enter into talking about it. There was a case of a researcher, Dean Pomolu. In 1991, he was researching self-driving cars. So these have been around for a long time, self-driving cars, and there were even DARPA, the uh, American Department of Defense, had competitions for self-driving cars. And they've been getting better and better and better to the point now where they can drive around on roads relatively safely. Mm. Yep. Um, they cause accidents by sticking to the rules too well. Yeah, not allowing for other people's breaking the rules. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So if they've got someone driving up their bum, they will stop at a red light. I think that was a case of the first crash that Google had with their Google car. Mm. Anyway, back in 1991, he was experimenting on a car. He would train it and then let it loose. Everything seemed to go well until the day that the Humvee approached a bridge and suddenly served, swerved to one side. And no matter what they did, it would keep on doing this. So they wanted to work out what was going wrong. As a programmer, computer programmer, I teach programming, debugging is an art. So it's a bit like detective work where you break up the program. Is it in this part? Is it in this part? Is it in this part? Okay, it's in this part. Is it in this subpart? Etc. Etc. You find where the bug is and there's a line there and a piece of code and you work out what the error was, right? And debugging is a part of coding. 70% of your time is spent debugging, even if you're good. Debugging is necessary, and it's necessary to know where things go wrong. Mm. But when you're training a, new, a neural network, there's no code to look at. All the decisions are being made in all the different parts all at once. They're being made in parallel, and they have no logic that you can follow. So you have to piece it together in a different way. You can't just zero in on that bug. You have to do analysis after analysis to see why it's responding incorrectly. Well, in this case, he found that instead of using the road to map where to go and then just drive over the bridge, he didn't know it, but the AI system was using the side of the road, was using the, the footpath and the grass to work out where the road was. And so when it saw this bridge, it said, nope, and <laughs> just went off, the, off to the side. Only really extensive testing can find out what the bug is in your AI system. You know, only extensive testing can tell you if your AI system is going to go rogue and run its own weapons program, <laughs> you know, and kill everybody, on, you know, the taking Terminator. it to the other limit, you know. And these are scenarios people are talking about. These mm. are scenarios Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking are talking about. Mm these systems going rogue. Mm. So this black box problem where we don't know how it works, we don't know what's inside, we just know that it's very, very, very useful mm. for us. Mm. 
is a very real problem. So there's a, a need for explainability. There's a need to understand the outcome that's, that's arrived at through the artificial neural network. Yeah. At this point in time, we can't really analyse our deep learning. Mm. We can look at the results and say, yes, it's useful. This is another thing about big data and AI. So AI and big data go hand in hand. Yep. I mean, this is a bit of a spooky story. It's not apocryphal, it's true. Anyway, I was driving in a taxi, talking to the taxi driver. Because I know nothing about cars, I wanted to know what he thought was a good buy. Okay, So he told me a particular car, make and model. Next day I was online, playing on YouTube, as one does. <laughs> Watching videos. Watching videos because YouTube is big data. Yep. It quickly analyzes what you're interested in mm. and gives you the next thing that you want to look at. Mm. So you get stuck there for three hours, yep. right? Yep. I get stuck there for three hours mm. watching brilliant stuff, mm. all sorts of stuff. Mm. Stuff on circuits, stuff on batteries and cars, on the American election, which you've got to admit is amazing. Mm. You just get stuck there with your mouth open. It's amazing. This is all big data. And AI. Mm. But if you look over into the ad section, <laughs> in the ad section was an ad for a car that I'd just been talking about the night before. <laughs> I know. Isn't it bizarre? Isn't it Isn't uncanny? It uncanny? I'll talk to my wife about going on a holiday. There'll Next. be... A- <laughs> And this is before Ads you've actually gone. This is before you've gone online, so it's sort of on the basis it of a conversation. Yeah. It can't be that way unless they're listening to you. Well, well, hey Siri, you know. Well, but, exactly, um, and and that's that's actually um, <laughs> well, they can because they use things and, and various companies. Google's got one. I think it's called Google Home. There's oh, the, the there's, there's the Amazon Echo, and Apple has just announced, and it's going to be released later later in the year. A thing called HomePod, which yeah. is a speaker, which is a Siri enabled speaker that can play. Apparently, very good quality sound, but also is there listening? It, it's like <laughs> if, you, if your phone's <laughs> plugged in and you've enabled it, uh, then your phone is waiting to hear the words "Hey Siri," and for it to be waiting to hear those words, then it's got to be listening to everything. It's listening to everything. Yeah, mm. it can hear everything, mm. and it could be recorded, God knows who where, or, mm. or translated to text and saved mm. somewhere. Mm. Who knows? It seems like that. I'm not saying it is. Mm. Hopefully, the laws protect us better than that i think there's a well i, I think the law's I, yet to catch up with a lot i'm of this pretty stuff. sure the law is clocking wherever we search and all that sort of stuff sure but, yep but this level is possibly a bit too much mm. maybe i'm being a, a bit over the top ott and saying that but boy it seems like it mm. it's so close to the things that you're really interested in at that 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 just at that moment mm. it gets the timing right and everything if you don't disable tracking, you'll find that across all your devices, it'll be serving you the same ads. It's you know you've yeah. done a search for a hotel in Thailand, you'll be bombarded and, until you until you get rid of your tracking, yeah. until you turn that off. Yeah, yeah. It, it's nice for YouTube to give me things that I want to look at, mm. but it's a bit spooky to have these ads. Mm. The other point that I wanted to make here is that. This is on that question of what happens when machines become smarter than humans. Yeah. Mm. Well, more. this is more about big data, mm. but I guess it goes back. Big data is messy. So the kind of data that a company like, say, Myers would have kept in their books and on their computers up until now would be accounting data, you know, functional data, data for day-to-day operations. And if there's one bit wrong on that, you've charged the customer wrongly. And if there's one bit wrong, you've got the wrong number of 
shirts or jeans or whatever it is in stock. It has to be precise, exact, up to date. But the amount of data that you need for that is minuscule. Your phone could hold it all for the whole of Australia, for Myers, pretty much. Mm. Big data is data from all over the place and it's messy and it's grubby and it's got missing bits and it doesn't have formats that work with other formats. The universities, I can tell you this is happening because I'm teaching a course in it, business analytics, at RMIT, fantastic course. So this data has to be cleaned up by humans, has to be massaged by humans or even by AI programs that are learning how to massage them. Data with missing records need to be either taken out or best guesses put in. So the end result of these codes is not a precise transaction or a precise analysis. It's a useful tool for doing useful things like annoying me with ads for exactly the kind of car I was looking at, right? So there's a lot of commercial applications Mm. that are coming up now purely because we have the ability to access all this data really, really quickly and query it really quickly. So the databases now are changing in form. Mm. Yes, there are those functional business databases. They're not going away. But these new kind of databases are creating a whole area called big data, the analysis and functional use of messy data. Yep. And the examples, well, there's been a few, but but one of them is in political advertising. And the suggestion has been that Facebook has provided information to the pro-Brexit campaign and to the Trump election campaign very granular data about people's voting intentions, identifying swinging voters, undecided, because they're the ones who are worth hitting with advertising. You don't, there's no point if you've got someone who's, who's voted the same way for generations, then don't bother advertising to them. Um, to effectively find, advertise find on the their pe- Facebook pages and, and yep. whatever. And the whole thing was automated and they had a way of... And of, again, it would be messy, but it'd be about right to be useful. Yep. And they could serve and up... stats could, would show that it was useful. Absolutely. Well, the results speak for themselves. But they were able to serve up a customised ad. I think they had 50,000 versions of some of the ads for the Trump campaign. But the system, the algorithm, chose the right one to send to the particular person that was nuanced in the right way. And it would appear, and this is going to be... that Obviously, it's, it's highly debatable at the moment the actual impact that, they, that this had on the outcomes of those elections. But there's no question that they did have. In the case of Brexit, the UK has election rules that prohibit foreign companies from you know, getting involved in an election campaign. And those companies that were helping the Brexit, the pro-Brexit campaign, were actually foreign companies based in Canada or in the US or elsewhere. But it would be very, very hard to trace. And- That's right. The law hasn't caught up with it yet. Arguably, there's a reason for the law to address these issues for future elections. You said to me before, and this relates to the question of what happens when machines become smarter than humans, that that you'll get a result where we don't actually understand how the outcome was arrived at. We just know that it's a clever outcome. Therefore, you have this need of explainability that the people who write the programs that are driving the machines, but also the, the end users of what the machines are trying to do for us, both those groups need explainability, the people who, who produce the machines because they want to be able to tweak the machines to do other things. Yeah. So they need to understand how. And, yeah. and this is where you said, you know, I said eventually it gets to the point where it's just like magic. We don't actually have any well, idea. Yeah, how it uh, it, I think there will probably be a period where we start to need a little bit more structure. So something like Watson has a structure. Mm-hmm. Where That's grabs, IBM's supercomputer. Sorry, I should explain. Yeah, yep. IBM's supercomputer 
which won a quiz game called Jeopardy, where you answer quiz questions which require general knowledge. Mm. Some of those questions require sort of rhyming and slang. They require what seems like human intelligence. Mm. And Watson won this competition Mm. against some long-time winners. Mm. Jeopardy's been going for decades. Mm. You know, we're talking about really smart. And Watson is showing that it's more useful than doctors. Watson has got a little bit more structure. But I think the next bit after that is what Kurtzfeld is talking about, which is the singularity, where they become so complex that to operate, they have to have a complexity that no human could understand. It's sort of bigger than the human brain. That could happen as well. Does that mean they're out of control? Yes. And what does that mean for humanity? Well, who knows? Mm. I think, though, it is necessary to speculate, and we've speculated on this show before, Mm. in order to have some idea of the possibilities. Mm. I do think that we do need to respect democracy. I don't know. I was just thinking this morning, Mm. we're already talking about, in the uh, ABC News website this morning, they were talking about the fact that it does look like Chinese technology could be vying with American and British. Yep. So this is something else in the mix of things. So a lot of technology went from America to China purely because of the cheapness of producing it. So solar technology innovated in, in America, fantastic technology, but instead of going with it, they went with oil, of course, and China is now benefiting from all of that technology. Could the same happen with AI? So people are asking questions like this. Mm. I think we've got to recognise within this that there are political structures both in China and in America that need to be understood in the mix. So this gets really, really complicated. I couldn't possibly speculate at that level of what's going to happen. On the technological side, yeah, AI is, is a threat a potential threat Mm. it's potentially wonderful as well people out there are going to see some marvelous things you know in the next 10 years the kids who are growing up now are going to see computers that can talk to you Mm. which will be amazing Mm. you know but there are also quite a number of threats out there yeah thank you very much to dr ian story lecturer in information systems at rmit you're listening to beyond infinity Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. So we have Dr. Ian Storey, who's a lecturer in information systems at RMIT, back in the studio. Great to have you here, Ian. Thanks, Piers. Great to be here. Let's get straight into it. We've got a few different things we want to cover today, but AI, artificial intelligence and deep neural networks seem to have rapidly growing applications. For example, voice assistants like Apple Siri is apparently using AI to to improve its performance and accuracy. There's an AI system being used by Tesla. Right. Whenever um, one Tesla car has a close call or a or an accident, God forbid, that gets uploaded to the cloud, quote unquote, and all Tesla cars then learn how to avoid that particular accident. They've got millions of kilometres under their belt now, so a constant loop feedback from the cars that are being driven on autopilot, anything that they learn about how to be safer, that goes back into the central database and then contributes to um, the performance of updates. 
That's right, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's all uploaded and then the updates have them when, when they're downloaded. You probably talked about it, but a bit of background to AI is mm. that precursors to AI started out as expert systems. Right. And these basically just looked up an encyclopedia. But the amazing thing was that experiments were showing that an expert system could perform better than your doctor. And I remember reading this, oh, I don't know, 70s, 80s, you know, a long time ago. Yep. <laughs> Not that, that I'm that old. And they were doing better than doctors just by looking up data. So these were not AI systems that were learning by themselves. And people back then didn't, didn't know where systems that could learn would go. They started experimenting with them and they introduced them through circuits that look like our brain circuits. Our brain circuits are incredibly malleable. Mm -hmm. So if someone loses an arm, you can hook up receptors to their brain. Those receptors won't necessarily be connected to the right spots for where their arm muscles were. Mm. They don't have to be. Your brain learns to route them. Right. Neuroplasticity, is that the term for that? You're probably right. <laughs> this is not my expertise, but mm, I, mm. You know, I'm very interested in it. Mm. I'm very interested in where they can go, these things too. Mm. I hate futurism. I don't want to be called a futurist, right? But I love speculation about what could happen in the future. And, and it's just speculation. Yeah, well, but, some of it's becoming real. They're using AI to analyse medical imaging products and using that to make determinations about life expectancy. So same sort of thing the insurance industry. Same sort of yeah. thing you're talking about, that, yeah. that a computer or a, a deep neural network can analyse thousands or hundreds of thousands of... I think they did a t one over in uh, New York at, a, at a, um, a hospital in New York where they had 750,000 people's medical imagery, fed that into a, a deep neural network. You know, the system was making predictions about life expectancy, which I think turned out to be 60% right. Yeah. Um, and it's, so it's improving. Yeah. So the, you know, the possibility is that you, you get to the point where these systems are actually more accurate than people can be. Yeah, they're dredging big data to get these amazing statistics mm. and these amazing results. Mm. We'll get back onto big data, but uh, just to go back to neural networks and their origin, mm. one of the first people to work with neural networks was a guy called Ray Kurzweil. He does tout himself as a futurist. But he has TED Talks and he has really a lot of respect. The reason being that he was the first person to get involved in this area and apply it to something useful. His first forays into producing something of practical value, of commercial practical value, was actually just a synthesizer. So he had the first synthesizer that could emulate a grand piano. Right. But he then worked on OCR, Optical Character Recognition, a computer that could read text. Mm. So it could read the letter A, the letter B, and convert it into a text format that the computer could, could read and send on. So you could, you could receive a fax, for example, scan it, and then have it digitised. And have it digitised. Mm. And these are used all over the all over the place. I use some every now and then when I want to copy some notes for my students <laughs> from a textbook. Mm. They're really amazing that mm. they can read all the different styles of text, mm. little bits of missing text, you know, splotches of, of ink, 
that shouldn't be there. That's been around for a while, that technology, hasn't yeah, it? But yeah, but he was involved in it. Mm, right. So he was, and, and they'd used neural networks to develop them, okay. to improve them. That was easy, though, compared to what he next got involved in, speech recognition. So speech recognition is where your iPhone listens to you and you say, hi, Siri. It didn't go off when I said that. <laughs> and then it responds with the answer to your question. Yep. So I don't know, do you remember the first ones of those and you had to train them for hours on end? So the first ones were long-winded, didn't recognize accents very well, but they're getting better and better all the time. You've still got to talk a little bit bosh in order to be understood. Right. Mm. Hey, Siri, mm. you know, set a timer for three minutes and 55 seconds, you know, that sort of thing, mm. to be understood. But they're getting better and better. And mm. pretty soon they will understand natural speech. When I say understand, be able to convert it to the corresponding text. Mm. So he was involved with that. And he is a futurist, like I said, and he has a lot of speculations about AI and he's well respected and he's written a book maybe I've talked to you about it before um, The Singularity is Near The Singularity is Near yeah mm. um, Fascinating I tried reading it actually uh, after you came, last I think <laughs> your last visit that yeah. subject and that book came up I told a friend about it he bought the book on Amazon lent it to me and basically neither of us could read it it was too heavy it was too oh, full yeah. on but, I mean we got the kind of you get the, get the idea, yeah. Well, the, base, the basic idea is geometric growth. In this case, geometric shrinking, you might even say, where the number of components, the size of the components decreases so low. I watched an interesting YouTube this week about Moore's Law. You know, with Moore's Law, the number of transistors you can fit on a board doubles every... 18 months. 18 months. That has been followed, but people think it's starting to slow down because transistors are now getting so shallow and so so compressed that we're talking they're running tens, out of space you can only... tens of numbers of atoms right instead of hundreds or thousands which you ne which you need mm. and we'll start to get quantum tunneling effects disrupting the operation of and this is where we sort of get into quantum computing which would be the next like once you get to the point with a conventional chip you can't get any you can't make anything. You can't make things small enough, or you can't make them any smaller than than a certain limit. Is the next step quantum computing to be able to continue the trend well, of Moore's law? For my masters, I, I did an assignment on quantum cryptography. I'm interested in quantum computing, but I'm not really knowledgeable about quantum computing. I do understand the basic operation is what they call qubits, which are entangled. To me, it seems like particular problems where there are alternative paths to go but in the same problem so for example chess or certain cryptography problems are amenable to quantum computing so you can have the separate paths separated into separate quantum states that all exist at the same time i mean quantum mechanics isn't it amazing you know so far they've only got when I first looked at it, they only had three entangled quantum qubits. I think they're getting up to 300 now. But the amazing thing is, every time you add one, it multiplies exponentially the number of possible states at the same time. 
I'm not so sure you can run a whole bunch of separate programs all at once that are each deterministic and useful. Mm-hmm. I think you need a certain kind of problem for quantum computing. You know, if someone wants to send us some information about that where they have cracked that issue, I would love to hear about it. Now, we mentioned off air before we began that the Chinese have got a quantum satellite and they've yeah. recently broken the, the distance record for quantum entanglement where you can, you can sort of trigger a quantum event, as it happened in this case, on board the satellite and you see something happen simultaneously in the lab back in China. Well, one thing that's been talked about which is probably a very, very long way away, is teleportation because you can sort of be in two places at the same time. And we could, we're talking potentially over massive, massive distances. So it could also be a sort of solution to interstellar flight or interstellar travel. The other application of this technology, I believe, is encryption technology. Because something happens in two places simultaneously, there's no time, there's no space in the middle for interception. Yes, that's basically the right idea with with quantum cryptography. So this is different from quantum computing. Okay. In this case, we're setting up the qubits to collapse at long distances and we can use those qubits to then encode a message. We just give it the data and it randomly chooses up or down. But whichever way it is chosen is reflected at the other end when it, when the quantum state collapses. The trick with them is that if you grab those photons and intercept them, mm. you will force the collapse in such a way that the system won't work and it will be immediately obvious that you're being intercepted. So it's an intercept-proof form of encryption. And you can add other encryptions on top of it. It's not the same kind of involved entanglement, though, of quantum computing. Quantum computing requires entanglement of a number of different states. Mm-hmm. Quantum cryptography, you can get those big distances because it's not such a big problem. With quantum computing, for a long, long time, it'll all be in one sealed-off area. And Australia's <laughs> quite advanced in... Isn't ANU one of the leading centres for developing quantum computing in Australia? Th- I'm not sure. Oh, sorry, in, in, uh, in quantum, the world, I think. I, I think they're, they're working on quantum cryptography. Mm-hmm. I haven't really kept up with what they're doing. What is interesting to me is that the researchers are going ahead and piling on numbers of quantum states into these quantum computers. The philosophical issue at the heart of quantum mechanics is where does the quantum state collapse? The uh, Copenhagen interpretation is that it collapses when the observer views it. That's essentially what happens when you have quantum cryptography and you, and you look at one end and the other end as well also collapses. Right? The issue is, could the observer also be in a separate state? So we're talking multiverse. Mm. And this makes your head blow up when you think about it. Mm. Like everybody else, physicists are conservative. You know, physicists were very conservative about the Big Bang. So when Stephen Hawking suggested that radiation from black holes could be due to the multiverse, quote-unquote, he was basically jeered at. But they're now starting to experiment with large numbers of entangled quantum states. So who knows, maybe at the end of this we'll start looking at large entanglements involving macroscopic objects which would be really 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 exciting Mm. 
how far does the multiverse, quote-unquote, extend? Mm. So you remember the movie, I think it was The Code or Code, mm. you know, with a science fiction plot that you could try out different alternative multiverses and then end up in the one you wanted to be in. Who knows what is happening? No mm. one knows. Mm. Uh, and it's exciting to me that they're experimenting with, with entanglement so, at this level. So just taking it back to what you were talking about with Moore's Law and the sort of limits to how much can be jammed into a, a, a small printed circuit or into a, a, a silicon wafer, presumably you get to a point where Moore's Law does slow down, but then presumably when, when quantum computing takes off, that's going to be a completely new paradigm and will blow away. It's a completely different paradigm. Yep. It could blow away the complexity if they can deal with that issue that I talked about earlier. Because it's zeros, instead of having a binary zero, one, it's both zero and one simultaneously. Sim- yeah. The idea is, say you have a chess game mm. and you have zero represents this path, one represents this path. Well, of course, you know, you, you build them up into integers and they represent different chess moves. So all of those separate possible games are digitally recognized. If you can go through to, like there's 10 to the 120, it doesn't sound like much, but it's more than the number of electrons in the universe. Wow. 10 to the 50 times. Wow. So, you know, games of chess. These, these are the possibilities of, of combinations of moves. In of the, games of chess, yeah, yeah. yeah. You find one that wins from where you're at and then you collapse the state and that one gets recognized. So it's a boutique kind of problem that that they're thinking could be dealt with by quantum computing. And I haven't really seen any evidence, well, I haven't read quote-unquote research myself enough to know if they can run separate useful programs, Mm -hmm. which would be what you'd need. Can you explain, and maybe quite a difficult question, but can you explain what happens when a quantum state collapses? If I could... Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't be here. <laughs> um, you know, uh, was, it, was it Pauling? If you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. But you can picture it, and it is accurate. It's extremely accurate. It's just that it uses probabilities. Who knows, maybe one day we'll find a deeper layer, but it uses probabilities. The best way to understand it is with the two-slit experiment. Maybe there'll be a lot of readers out there going, oh, I studied, the, studied that at high school. You know, It's a really good, simple example of quantum mechanics in operation. So when you have light going through two slits, the photons produce a wave pattern like water going through two, like two sources of vibrating water. You'll see the troughs and the still bits of the water where, where they interfere with, it, with each other. Mm. They produce an interference pattern. So the waves cancel at some points and they add at some points. And you get these curves that are caused by the interference of, of the two waves moving up and down. The difference between water and quantum mechanics is, and you know, light in the two-slit experiment, is that in water, the waves are all different molecules bouncing up and down. In the two-slit experiment, believe it or not, it has to be, because they can shoot one photon at a time to do this, one photon going through both the slits at the same time, producing an interference pattern on the other side. How does that happen? <laughs> you know, mm. what is going on? Mm. 
It just has to be that those two universes exist. Those two states exist. And it's only after you collapse it that they reveal themselves. The photons go on and do something else. So they're there anyway, and it's only when we look that we see them. I think it's when they they interact with something else that then comes to us looking at them. Because it's almost like it's it's almost like the the action of looking at something makes it exist. Yeah, yeah. What is possible, but what no one wants to think because it fries your brain if you do so, is there could be two observers having so different there could collapses. Be two of you. So then there's a multiverse, and there's yeah. another version of you living. Yeah, and what would be interesting about these quantum computing is if we get to a certain level, we may be able to see what's happening between these universes at macroscopic levels. You know, this is real real science fiction. Yeah. And as I say, a lot of physicists would laugh at this kind of notion. There has been no indication of where the level is set for the level of entanglement for the multiverse. This is heading in the direction of experimenting with that kind of stuff. And I noticed the researchers don't think that that is going to stop. They just keep adding them on. Mm. I think Australia is quite heavily involved in this. There is a Department of Quantum Science at ANU, Australian National University in Canberra. It hosts a node of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology. So both those things you're talking about. There's plenty of interest in Australia as well as elsewhere in the world. Thank you very much to Dr Ian Storey, lecturer in Information Systems at RMIT. You're listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. Where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years. John, uh, some interesting news out of Auckland regarding artificial intelligence. Yeah, this is, look, it's the, I guess the hot topic of the last couple of years about AI and machine learning and, and what it can do. And this research is sort of born out of uh, something that was developed a few years ago, a software implementation called NeoCube. So this is the underlying software that was used uh, to do this uh, this test, which I'll get to in a second. Hmm. But just a bit of background, NeoCube uh, was pioneered by Professor Nikola Kazabov, and this is at uh, Kedri, K-E-D-R-I, R&D Systems, which is the AUT Knowledge and Engineering Discovery and Research Institute. Okay. Basically, it's a software implementation available in uh, several different languages, which is MATLAB and Java, Python, C++. And uh, it's tailored to understand spike sequences in neurons, you know, mapping variables in spiking neurons. So think of the electric activity in your brain. Mm. And it's about understanding, well, not necessarily understanding, but, but measuring and capturing those those spikes in the brain electricity. So, uh, for example, some of the um, things that NeoCube can do is input data transformation into spike sequences, mapping input variables into spiking neurons, deep unsupervised learning spatio-temporal spike sequences in a scalable 3D SNN reservoir. Uh, there's look, there's a number of different things that this can achieve. That's the sort of underlying platform that can be used to do this. And some researchers at uh, the Auckland University have now taken that and applied it to an, an, a concept, an idea. And this is Sisters Zora and Mayam Dobriger. And basically these researchers, sisters, have been able to adopt this NeoCube technology and allowed it to predict a person's choices 
before they have even made up their mind. Yeah, this is amazing. Mm. What they did is they, they're PhD students and they had 20 participants and those participants watched a video of different beverage logos and that data was recorded using an EEG headset. The participants used this headset, all connected with wires, and then that data was synced up with the NeoCube algorithm. And what it did is it learned, so the program learned and classified patterns from the participants' brains. So basically it was looking at, you know, if a, if a logo popped up and somebody recognised that, there would be a spike in brain activity. Or if they didn't recognise the logo, then they didn't necessarily recognise it, therefore there was no sort of spike in the brain activity, like electrical impulses, the signals in the brain. And this all happens unconsciously. We're not consciously thinking about spikes in the brain, but this is what they have done is been able to capture that information. Now what that has done is because it's fed into this NeoCube, that can then be extracted and then being used to predict uh, somebody's choice. So based on what's happening in your unconscious mind, mm. this machine learning program, this NeoCube, was able to predict with you know, reasonably good certainty 0.2% better than what the person could achieve in the in the sort of same time frame. So they could the machine learning could out predict or be faster at predicting what the user would choose. So if they uh, they were going to make a subconscious choice, the system here, the neurological systems that are happening can now be predicted by this technology, which is in a way is um, a little bit scary. I guess, you know, the way that the brain works is that, you know, all these micro impulses are happening, you know, millions, billions every second in your in your brain. What has to happen in your subconscious mind is then for it to carry through to your conscious mind. So you might be thinking about, I, I want to have this drink, and your your brain in your conscious mind is going through the decisions, but your subconscious mind has probably already made its mind up. It's just your conscious mind is sort of maybe accepting that analysis and, oh, hang on, what do I want this or do I want, want that one? But the subconscious mind is already there. It's going, no, 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 you, you want this particular soft drink. You want uh, the, the raspberry one versus the cola type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's just the conscious mind to catch up. And so, But what this system is doing is actually tapping into the subconscious mind and therefore being able to measure it and go, we know what you want. And therefore, um, we'll tell you what you want and we'll tell you before your conscious mind, 0.2 seconds before your conscious mind can get there. Initially, the NeoCube was thought to you know, assist with you know, medical patients and being able to understand what's happening in the brain. So maybe being able to stand medical conditions that can be you know negative maybe there's a an aspect of epilepsy what maybe can trigger things maybe what leads people to uh, do bad things now whereas this is more looking at potentially a marketing aspect so what these researchers have done is, is basically opened up a bit of a can of worms i guess you could look at mm. maybe they'll be in high demand from the big corporate agencies that are going to look at them and say we want to apply this so how do we reverse engineer this into our product or our brand because what it means is you can design a logo or a label or a, a bottle or advertising, whatever it is, advertising, TV ad. and then you can play that in front of somebody and then you can measure the signals coming out of that brain and then determine, were well, there are enough spikes in the brain? Were there enough things in there to say, that is good enough for me to now push this ad out, to publish this ad? You know how you've got the, the testing where people go into the room and they, they get the little cups and they have to drink the beverage or they have to they get the spoon and if they eat it and then based on 20 or 30 participants, whether they like it or not, it goes to the next stage. Mm. 
I think we'll probably see more of this neural networking, you know, reading of it where they'll put something over their head and they'll be reading the brain signals and see if they're getting the pleasure or the pain or the satisfaction out of eating, drinking, seeing from this. And, you know, basically tapping into the subconscious mind to then reuse that back on the, the, the general population. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? I mean, it really is a kind of dystopian future where where advertising can be tweaked that accurately. That you know, that whole idea that you can actually, you, you know, your brain is registering something before you're aware that it's registered it. You know, that's the way the subconscious works. Exactly. It, this is a quote from uh, the article that I've sourced this from: "Is we know that only ten percent of people's decisions are intentionally made; the other ninety percent are made subconsciously by the brain, based on previous experiences." history, genetics, and other factors. This work will be a game changer for marketing in particular. Yeah. And that is the concern. We think we, we think that we make all our decisions, but what we know is uh, if you walk into a supermarket, it's things that are eye level that um, you know marketers have learned over the years that that's going to be the best sales. Yeah, for the type of colors. and Yeah, or know, even for kids. Uh, you know, lower height. L- lower height. That's Absolutely. because they can grab it. And so this is just adding something else in. So it is concerning because, um, you know, we, thought we had some conscious choices and uh, it appears as though uh, that has that is gone many many years ago yeah indeed so let's see how this goes but the neo cube sounds like a pretty amazing development uh, i like the idea that you can understand how much bias or prejudice we have due to our subconscious what are our true preferences in life how can we communicate better and how can we learn better? These are all sort of spin-offs of this work in AI. So really interesting stuff. I think I'll follow this now and see how else this NeoCube is being applied in other research yeah. uh, because it, you know, it all, all to do with the brain, I guess the final frontier of the human. We understand mm. so much about the rest of the body, but mm. the brain is um, you know, quite complex and, and difficult. And and this, I wonder if political yeah. advertising could, could uh, wind up sort of taking hold of this as well. You know, the likes of Cambridge Analytica, you know, the, mining the data of people's That's Facebook. Right. Well, what about uh, tapping your subconscious before you're even aware. Exactly. And that, that is the, the magic concern. I mean, I, I'm also looking at it from the point of view, I can't wait for, say, game developers to get a hold of this. And therefore, you know, think of your 3D virtual environment. You put your little headset on and all you're doing is thinking about, I want to go here, I want to do this. And it's sending those impulses back out. And due to the machine learning, it's able to predict and actually act on what you want to do in that game. So they're the exciting components. And trading. I mean, you know, or, um, how people how people invest in, in stock for example. I mean, Which is, if, can be an emotional response. Exactly. Yeah. If that, again, could be done, if you could predict outcomes before decisions have even been made, that would be a, a huge game changer as well. Well, thanks, John. That's fascinating stuff. Auckland researchers are making a uh, world-first discovery into AI. And if you want to read more, we'll have links on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. <laughs> AI to me is it's kind of awe-inspiring, but it's, there's also a kind of very scary side to it as well, I think. Yes. And, and this was illustrated to me just in the last few days as I was trawling around for some stories for today's program. I came across a website called thispersondoesnotexist.com. Yeah. Now, this is using AI, and it's using uh, some pretty cool, but not that revolutionary techniques and technologies to 
generate images. So based on scans of, I mean, let's face it, there's so many photos, mugshots of people out there, whether they're celebrity mugshots, which are in the public domain, or whether they're on Facebook, or whether they're on Instagram, mm-hmm. or they've found their way into the public domain somehow. They're floating around on the web. Uh, they can be harvested. They can mm-hmm. be gathered together. Then AI can be applied to them. And in fact, you can even have competing AI algorithms that are kind of trying to outdo each other to to play around with these yep. and create realistic looking mugshots, face shots of people uh, who don't exist. Mm. And it's kind of, it's weird. And so this website, thispersondoesnotexist.com, all it does is literally, it just has a picture of a person, you hit refresh and another picture of a person comes up and so on and so on. And they're very realistic. Some more than And they're not real at all. They're not real people. They're AI automatically, you know, generated... Uh, digital image of someone that does not exist. Now, you might find a picture that may look like somebody, but that picture is generated from technology, not from a, a, a picture. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's scary in a way. I guess one of the, the legit re- uses of this, you kind of scratch your head and go, well, what on earth would you be generating all these fake, fake faces mm. for? Mm. Well, one is if you're trying to generate characters for a story. So a video game, for example, if yep. you don't have an actor and you don't want to pay an actor either, mm-hmm. then better to create a face using AI yep. based on it's complete. It doesn't. It's not copying anyone's who's exists face, um, but it looks very real. And then you apply that to your your uh, your character in your you know first person shooter or whatever it is. Or even a movie if you want even extras in a, yeah, on a movie. In, a, in a, a CG movie. Yeah, if you had a low budget cartoon, movie and yep. you didn't want to pay extra to come in, mm. then you can just uh, digitally generate this via AI. And they look really real. It can be an old person, it can be a baby, it can be a, a people wearing glasses. One of the, There are a few little telltale signs, like it, it seems to not get teeth very well. If there's people in the background, they can look a bit weird. There can be a little bit of distortion around the side of the face sometimes. So if you look closely at these images, you can see flaws. But don't forget, this is basically, I think this is a student-led project, yeah. basically. There's so, enough, but there's enough imperfections in the facial, facial structure that that's what makes it believable. You know when sometimes you see a digital image and you're like, oh, that's too perfect, like it's a Barbie doll or a Ken doll type picture. Yeah. When you look at some of these photos, I'm, like, I'm looking at some of the things now and it's like, okay, the cheeks are a little bit chubbier or there's a few hairs that are you know hanging over an eye, which you know it's not the perfect shot. So there's, there's these subtleties which make you go, that looks exactly like a real person, yes. but it's a digital image. Absolutely. Yeah. So apart from creating characters for movies or video games or I don't know, that kind of stuff, cartoons. The other use of it potentially, and this is the downside of it, is is possibly for um, ID scams. So say, for example, you wanted to create a fake Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, you could you could basically make it look like you've got a bunch of friends and, and they could all be fake mugshots generated by AI that if you do a, a scan and then you you know you do a face ID or face matching mm-hmm. process, you, apply, you try to match these up against real people, you'll never find them because they're not real people. Mm-hmm. So if you were interviewing someone for a job or if you were trying to assess whether a, a, a Facebook page was real or not, it would be harder because you wouldn't be able to prove conclusively, oh, you could say, okay, well, that's that person, but they actually don't know them. Mm. You would draw a blank. So it's a bit harder to trace. And this is basically a student-led project, this person does not exist.com. So I imagine you could get even better quality than but these guys are generating. Every time you refresh the screen, a new image comes up, but you don't cycle back through to the start image where you began. So mm. you're only seeing that image once. I doubt you would ever roll back to the original image because it continually changes. And therefore, you wouldn't be able to get multiple photos of the same digitally created image of a person. So it's a one-off unique image that you'll probably never see again. You can take a screenshot, but you'll never get that same digital generated person again 
I mean, think of how many billions of people there are in the world and how many subtle changes there are to make it look like a slightly different person. So you could go through trillions, if not you know, more photos or images. It's kind of scary, amazing, uh, creepy. It's got a whole, lot of, a whole lot of sort of emotional reactions come to mind from this. The people behind it have done this, and it's, uh, it's a guy by the name of Wang is the guy who set up This Person Does Not Exist. But he's done it to illustrate the potential advantages and disadvantages of AI technology in doing this, creating fake faces and identities in a way. This could be used to create plausible characters for a story, also used for scams that rely on bogus IDs or testimonials. The website is trying to promote and prompt discussion about the ethics of AI image manipulation before it goes too mm-hmm. far. So it's, 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 it's kind of useful for that. It is, and that's exactly what it's done for me and for us right now. And that website is thispersondoesnotexist.com. So head there and refresh the page and yeah, you'll see. and you'll see it. There's nothing yeah. on the page. I looked for an about. I looked for. I tried to find a drop-down menu. There's literally nothing there. It's just one screen of a picture of a face and uh, you just keep refreshing it and you'll get a different I did try to find a picture of maybe represented uh, someone I know or, or even me, but uh, this, you know, every time I refreshed, it was just a completely different look and person. There was no consistency whatsoever. There is some explanation and we'll post links on our website, Beyond Infinity com.au with this story but um, there's a there's a website lyrn.ai which has an explanation it's it's called style-based gans generating and tuning realistic artificial faces so a generative adversarial network a gan a relatively new concept in machine learning introduced for the first time in 2014 the goal is to synthesize artificial samples such as images that are indistinguishable from authentic images mm. and what style gan does is it generates artificial image uh, images gradually starting from a very low resolution and continuing to a high resolution by modifying the input each level separately it controls the visual features that are expressed in that level from coarse features the pose or the shape of the face to fine details like hair color without affecting other levels. Mm-hmm. Now, there are YouTube uh, videos that explain this and, and, and we'll post links. I think I've posted one on our Twitter feed already. It's mm-hmm. on our website, beyondinfinity.com.au. If you want to contact us via social media, just scroll to the bottom of the page. Facebook and Twitter are there. But it does give you quite a good explanation showing you how these, these images are built up over time. So it really is extraordinary. I just found this... You know, inspiring in some ways, scary in others. Continuing with the theme of AI, and it seems that it's sort of increasingly in the news. It's it's kind of a new thing, a new paradigm, which the world's going to have to deal with. And this is sort of highlighting the potential misuse or the, the risks of AI. Now, Elon Musk, we talk about a lot. He's got a company that's been set up that I think he's contributed a lot to, and I think there's other people who are funding it as well, but it's called OpenAI. It's a non-profit research company backed by Musk, Reid Hoffman, Sam Altman, uh, and various others. And um, it's come up with a uh, a new uh, AI model called GPT-2. And what this does, it can actually write news stories and works of fiction dubbed deep fakes for text which have got to the point where they're very believable. Mm. And so unlike a lot of stuff, research material that's, that's, that comes out of OpenAI, as the name suggests, Open, uh, it's shared with the public. The code or the algorithms or the, uh, the methodology behind it is shared with other researchers and I think even the public can get access to the, the kind of core material behind it, the source material. In this case, with these deep fakes for text, 
they've actually taken the unusual step of not releasing it because mm-hmm. they think they need actually want to do some more tests. They want to find out where this thing can lead because one of the problems with being able to generate very believable text is it can feed into fake news yep. and it can feed into Government things pro- like propaganda, yeah, yeah. spam. Yep. And then suddenly, you know, it becomes it can flood the internet with a whole lot of stuff which is uh, indistinguishable from, well, undermines from real all, stuff. Undermines all text and therefore nothing becomes believable anymore. So we have this with, with Google to a degree. I mean, if you're writing an email now, there's a predictive nature which you can start writing a sentence and then it'll actually have in a lighter grey which allows you to then say, yes, I want to say that. And there could be another three or four words you know, ahead of what you're typing and you can just agree to say that. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you know, it's predictive text that is a little bit concerning. There's a bit of AI involved and you've got yeah. to be careful if you're punching out a text and you're, not, you're a bit absent-minded, you can wind up sending something and then you have to look at it and go, oh, hang on, I didn't mean that at all. Yeah. Is this- it AI writing or is it you writing? Yeah, yeah. well, well, I think in some cases it's based on what you've written in the past, exactly. the, the, the things that it's suggesting. So this deep fakes for text system from OpenAI, it was trained on a data set containing about 10 million articles selected by trawling the social news site Reddit favourite of mine and and John's, for links with more than three votes. The vast collection of text weighed in at 40 gigabytes, enough to store about 35,000 copies of an average-sized novel. It could revolutionise machine learning by making it a far more effective tool to teach machines about the workings of language. Mm. And this is where it's got that that linkage to news and fake news mm-hmm. because it really does sound like they have made some big strides in AI's ability to master language, to understand, even to do things like comprehend a passage. So you can give it a bit of real text mm-hmm. that's written by a human and ask it questions which relate to, you know, kind of depth of knowledge and, yeah. and bringing in other information you know that a human would have in in basic comprehension of something well ai is getting to the point where it can have that as well apparently the researchers behind it at OpenAI were very excited by this breakthrough mm-hmm. but they're also cautious about yep. it so they see they see a lot of positivity that could flow from it they also see some downside and some risk just a quote from one of the people involved with this guy by the name of nicholson he says that GPT-2 is the kind of system that we really need to build because we've built a society based entirely on humans creating information and then humans interpreting that information. That quality also led OpenAI to go against its remit of pushing AI forward and keeping GPT-2 behind closed doors for the immediate future while it assesses what malicious users might be able to do with it. Quote, we need to perform experimentation to find out what they can and can't do, said Jack Clark, the charity's head of policy at uh, OpenAI. If you can't anticipate all the abilities of a model, you have to prod it to see what it can do. There are many more people than us who are better at thinking what it can do maliciously. Just a little bit more about the way that the OpenAI software works. The OpenAI team are hoping that the software can create AI systems that are both safe and also highly useful in some way. But ultimately, they're excited about what they've built. Because of its ability to understand the human language, GPT-2 is able to understand how to make some of the most important changes to the world in the years to come. The possibility of, um, of bad actors getting hold of this and using it to create spam or, or um, fake news. As it's trained on the internet, it's not hard to encourage it to generate uh, bigoted text, conspiracy theories, and so on. So unfortunately, there's a lot of material out there already, which yeah. if you sort of if you give 
uh, an AI system open slather, well, then it's going to learn all that as well. It's not going to necessarily just get all your sweet, wholesome stuff that kind of reflects. It'll learn how to inflame, um, you know, potential opposing parties and mm. ideologies. So, if on the one hand you are a major supporter of one thing, and then you've got detractors on the other side, this AI might be able to pick at that and actually publish content which is promoted through social media, all completely fake, but then help to create even further division in between, you know, those to opposing sides yeah and and open ai's goal is pretty admirable really that the goal is to show what's possible to prepare the world for what will be mainstream in a year or two's time and again quoting from jack clark head of policy i have a term for this the escalator from hell it's always bringing the technology down in cost and down in price. The rules by which you can control technology have fundamentally changed. We're not saying we know the right thing to do here. We're not laying down the line and saying this is the way. We're trying to develop more rigorous thinking here. We're trying to build the road as we travel across it. Mm. That's from OpenAI. Very interesting that they so, can generate I, text like that. And the thing is, like I see and have seen for years, AI to a degree has been derided by uh, political parties or the general public. They think, oh, it's it's nothing. You know, we're never going to get anything like what say Star Trek had or any of these, you know, big sort of movie type AIs. But we're already on that path and we're very actually a lot closer to that than what we uh, mainly consider and so because of this we lack in policy we're sort of just sliding into this this world where ai will exist all around us and unfortunately because we haven't been listening properly we, we won't pick up the signs of what is or what isn't ai it's a classic example and it's happening. There's other examples of where technology, the, the laws of, of countries hasn't caught up with technology yep. and, there's, and there's this lag. Nowhere is that more true than in dealing with AI. But that's not to say that it's all bad. There are some really positive spins on this. Just interesting to, um, it gives an example of where they fed the opening line of George Orwell's 1984, so kind of ironic choice of subject matter there, very dystopian world that uh, he wrote about. So the opening line, it was a bright and cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. And the system recognised the vaguely futuristic tone and the novelistic style and continues with, and this is quoting what AI came up with, I was in my car on my way to a new job in Seattle. I put the gas in, put the key in, and then I let it run. I just imagined what the day would be like a hundred years from now. In 2045, I was a teacher in some school in a poor part of rural China. I started with Chinese history and a history of science. That's what AI came up with, yeah. giving one line mm. out of a novel written mm. Yeah, it wasn't there to, years ago. It wasn't there to predict what the novel said. It was it was there to create a new story. Yeah, which, and so far I would look at that and I wouldn't be able to tell that that was an AI. You go, yeah. I'll read on. That was that was an uh, an author that actually wrote. So this, you, yeah. then you have people who don't even who just if you're smart enough at using AI, then you don't even need to actually write a novel. You can just get let AI write a novel. Yeah. You can just feed in a little corrective line. You can steer yeah. it every so often. I want some suspense and I want you know mm. to talk about this, and all mm. of a sudden you've got a, a full novel. It makes it easier to play plagiarize in a way as well anyway look let's let's move on from that to a kind of a brighter use of ai now that the world's most powerful supercomputer called summit is at at the oak ridge national lab in america and that i think that same place was involved in the manhattan project which in which came up with the world's first atomic bomb mm-hmm. this is the first time that an american supercomputer has captured the crown of being the fastest and most powerful supercomputer in the world the chinese apparently had that mantle for five years years running 
Now, this giant computer is using machine learning. It occupies an area equivalent to the size of two tennis courts. It uses more than 27,000 powerful graphics processors in the project. It was able to make a billion billion operations per second, or what is known in supercomputing circles as an exaflop. Apparently, this is the first time that deep learning has been scaled to such levels of performance. They are looking to use this to examine climate change. Now, this is a, so the world's most powerful computer is using AI focused on one of the world's largest problems, climate change. The project demonstrates the scientific potential of adapting deep learning to supercomputers, which traditionally simulate physical and chemical processes such as nuclear explosions, black holes, or new materials. Did you know that the reason why America had a ban on nuclear testing underground, I think it was the last time that they did actual atomic bomb tests underground, I think in Nevada, Mm -hmm. was because they were able to simulate it using supercomputers. I did know something about that. And they were taking the old footage that they'd captured from the, what, the 60s, 50s and 60s. Feeding it into the supercomputer. Feeding that in. And then the supercomputer sort of reverse, Mm. you know, worked that out and goes, well, this is what we expect would happen. Or they can simulate. They've got enough data to be able to feed it all in. And this is actually, this is going back decades. Mm. So this is quite a long time that that's applied. Google's also been helping this project of looking at climate change using the world's most powerful supercomputer. It's called Summit. Googlers helped the project by adapting the company's open source TensorFlow machine learning software to Summit's giant scale. Now, this came out from OpenAI, uh, Elon Musk's company. So back to that not-for-profit of Elon Musk's. OpenAI calculated the amount of computing power in the largest publicly disclosed machine learning experiments has doubled roughly every 3.43, so three and three quarter months, 2012, which would mean an 11-fold increase each year. That's publicly disclosed machine learning experiments. Mm. There's probably a lot that's happening which mm-hmm. isn't, isn't publicly exposed. That progression has helped bots from Google parent Alphabet defeat champions at tough board games and video games and fueled a big jump in the accuracy of Google's translation service. So Google Translate's a great, great utility, tool. Yeah. great tool. It can almost, I think, work in real time. It you does. Can, you yeah. have your phone sitting in front of you. You're speaking in English into it and it's translating for someone else who's yeah. replying in a foreign language and you're understanding each other, which is incredible. So some of the uses as far as climate change, and this is and this is really this is the upside of AI and and machine learning, is that it should help predict storm impacts such as flooding and physical damage. You know, yeah, because uh, the issue with with all of this is that small variables have major changes. It's the sort of the butterfly effect, if you will, mm. uh, and there are you know potentially millions of different trillions or even bigger number than that of these small variables. So the supercomputer is taking into account all of this, and if there is a small change in one of these variables, then it can look at what the expected outcome is. For a regular home computer to do that, it would probably take a thousand years yes. to work out what's going to happen in the next ten minutes. So they're being able to generate much longer scale and range climate predictions and doing this in a way which is taking it taking account of the sort of volatility of of, um, of weather which we're now experiencing mm. you know more floods more extreme cold mm-hmm. more extreme heat waves all that sort of stuff this is shedding light on that which is undeniably useful this project on climate change won the Gordon Bell Prize for boundary pushing work in supercomputing that went to the Oak Ridge, Lawrence Berkeley and and NVIDIA researchers who've been involved in this. 
the slowing pace of improvements to conventional processes has led engineers to stuff supercomputers with growing numbers of graphics chips where performance has grown more reliably. So that's kind of an interesting limit possibly to Moore's law that uh, your standard sort of CPU, that, that idea that it would double every year, or mm-hmm. I think it was mm-hmm. I think that's Moore's law or every every eighteen months thereabouts, that seems to be tapering off. We've yeah. got we've we've sort of reached really, really high performance chips yeah. in phones and in, in desktops and laptop computers. Consumer items have now got really fast processes, but where the continuing output in, in improvement is in graphics chips. And yes. I guess that's been driven by things like video gaming, mm-hmm. that sort of stuff, which is which is so demanding on those sorts of chips. That's where the improvements has been, and that's where they're able to get these um, exaflop performance out of supercomputers like Summit. And the next big step up is quantum computing, because it, you know we are reaching the limits of what we can in a, a conventional um, you know chip, and uh, the quantum computing method will actually reinvent the game completely. Deep learning is going to generate more realistic simulations of clouds inside climate forecasts, which could improve forecasts of changing rainfall patterns. Another example of this. So uh, great that they're doing this. A really good story against that sort of backdrop of false identities, fake news, fake text, spam and all that sort of stuff. All the kind of dubious and uh, slightly scary uses or potential uses of AI to hear and to, to learn that laboratories and researchers are being given awards in America for actually shedding light on on climate change mm-hmm. and given the political circumstances in America where there's a lot of climate change deniers mm-hmm. out there it is certainly encouraging to hear AI used in this way to address a very serious issue for the world You're listening to From the Vault the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show where we look back over some of the most interesting science and tech stories we've covered over the years There's been a lot in the news about Huawei, uh, which is a big Chinese tech company Mm -hmm. involved in cellular and internet infrastructure, the Mm -hmm. backbone of the internet. They manufacture that stuff and often they uh, they compete very well on price. And so a lot of countries around the world have been tempted to use their... Well, quite a popular uh, phone as well in China. Absolutely. Yeah, they're they're a massive tech giant. TPG has recently pulled out of um, using uh, or developing, I think, the next 5G network yeah, for yeah. mobile. Because the backbone was be- Huawei. Because, because Huawei has been banned from operating in Australia, as it has been in other governments around the world, uh, in other countries around the world, uh, because of fears about espionage and about mm-hmm. how, how you, you don't want to have a Chinese company that may be um, going to use that that their own installed infrastructure yeah. to possibly spy on you or spy on your companies or spy on your government. So that had a big impact on TPG recently. But there are people who are actually coming out in Australia at the moment and saying that uh, don't worry about Huawei, there's a much bigger threat related to AI, artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. and the way the Chinese are developing that. Now, what specifically they're saying is that the Chinese are developing AI to monitor and control their own population. They've got nearly one and a half billion people in China. Mm-hmm. It's a very authoritarian, single government, you know, one-party state over there. Notionally communist, but probably very capitalist in reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I think the, the president of China has uh, enshrined an extension to his term in office. I think it's, he's there indefinitely. I think, he, and, and then possibly even uh, his heirs. You know, there's a, there's a dynasty being being uh, created over there. So quite an authoritarian government by comparison to other democracies. China has a huge amount of data about its uh, about its population. They don't have privacy regulations in the yeah. way that we do. So the government collects all sorts of information. They're very smartphone savvy over there. They yeah. use their phones for payments almost completely. You no, know, as we, we 
use Pay and AliExpress. As, and, exactly. Yeah. As we use credit cards, um, you know, tap and stuff, they use their phones. People are using Apple Pay in Australia as well, so that there is a shift towards um, towards doing that. Android has uh, has its own yep. equivalent system as well, which people are using. It's convenient, saves carrying a wallet around, allows all this granular data to be collected. But uh, in China, they don't have a, they don't have the same privacy uh, restrictions that we have in Australia. So that means the government has this uh, huge well of data that can be tapped into using AI to potentially regulate and control mm-hmm. and uh, and squash dissent mm-hmm. among its its uh, big population. Some of that technology is actually up for sale to other governments around the world, other yeah. other authoritarian states that may want to use it, mm-hmm. and even uh, companies that want to use it to uh, to monitor their workforces, that sort of stuff. So quite dystopian, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's a little bit of a worry. There's been some stuff in the press recently. A professor of cybersecurity. Greg Austin is at the University of New South Wales. He said, quote, if I was asked uh, which was the bigger threat to the West, is it Huawei or is it their research on artificial intelligence? I would say it's their research on artificial intelligence. That far outranks any of the concerns that we have from what Huawei might do in terms of foreign espionage. And as we mentioned, Huawei has been banned from taking part in the rollout of the 5G mobile technology or mobile network in Australia because of national security concerns and has faced similar restrictions in other countries. Yeah, because the AI will basically be able to identify certain keywords or the way that uh, certain people that may be talking to each other. And uh, I understand that, hang on, this is a dissent or this is a, a ploy or a plot uh, maybe to overthrow the government or, or it might be a very simple thing, uh, but that information can then be used uh, to maybe attack that person or make that person go away, uh, which we have seen, uh, unfortunately. You mentioned um, dissidents. There's a big uh, Muslim minority in the Xinjiang province, Western China. The United Nations has cited estimates that up to a million of those people Uyghurs, uh, yeah. yep, could be being held in involuntary extra-legal detention. That's mm. uh, a million people. That's a lot. Uh, we've also talked about the social credit system that China has instituted, whereby if you somehow fall foul of the government or authorities over in China, you can find the next time you go online to buy yourself a, uh, a train ticket or yep. an air ticket somewhere mm-hmm. that you're not, about, you're not, it's not, not allowed, it's not possible. Yep. You may find that your children's chances of going to a good university, even if they've got the grades to qualify mm-hmm. and there's no problem paying the fees and whatever, that they're not uh, not eligible to get in there because of points gone against them under this um, social credit system. And, got and, a, and it's, it's monitored through video cameras. It's also yes. how you act online. If you And video cameras are yeah. another thing that China's been accused of. There's hundreds of millions of Chinese made video CCTV cameras around the world mm. used, being used in banks, being used outside uh, defence institutions and so on. And it's been suggested that some of those may even be compromised that have got uh, built-in hardware. And, feeding and that data that, back. That, yeah. that they're, they're running these you know data centres with hundreds of millions of video feeds coming yeah. in and they're using facial recognition technology. Mm-hmm. You can even analyse people's gates the way they walk. If you can't see their face clearly, you can actually analyse their gait to make a unique yeah. sort of profile of them. So you don't necessarily need to see a clear face. You might be wearing a hat or they might have their back to you, but you can still work out who people are going through a crowded train station or going in and out of a uh, particular office block that you're interested in. The question is, who, who are we making this safe for? Because obviously they're looking for people that are, that are doing the wrong thing, but who are they actually making it safe? If everyone's living in fear um, or if other governments around the world are thinking they're taking this on, uh, they're worried about uh, their own you know, citizens maybe potentially overthrowing them. Uh, so it really is... 
the, the powerful trying to protect the powerful rather than uh, look out for their citizens, which is very, very concerning. Now, China's been investing very heavily in AI. Generally, this is referred to as the development of computer systems that perform tasks normally requiring human intelligence. Beijing has the advantage of that, that huge amount of data that it's able to collect without any privacy restrictions. They announced grand plans back in 2017 in a national blueprint to address any shortcomings that might be there, aiming to become the world's leader in artificial intelligence by 2030. Now, there are some people who say that that's, that's very uh, unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are others who suggest that that, uh, that could be happening. It could even happen earlier than that. And, and you just have to look at the way the Chinese and Chinese businesses and often with backing from the government, that line between big business and, and the government is often blurred in China. They've been um, you know, working pretty closely with Google, a big um, an American uh, technology and internet company, for example, to develop that, uh, that sense of I internet. I think plans of, for that have been They've been put on hold, but hold, I think there yeah. are other areas yes. where they're collaborating with, uh, with Western tech companies. Uh, it's been suggested that, uh, as I said, that that, that uh, technology to monitor your population and control it with AI uh, could be sold to the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and even Singapore. Um, another use that's of concern is AI being used to make decisions about whether a, an unmanned drone, which is armed, fires a missile. And at the moment, the drones over the Middle East that America runs, uh, they're controlled by people and people make the final decision whether to mm. launch at a particular target. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big fears of uh, the people who are concerned about AI, and one of them is Elon Musk, mm-hmm. he's on the record as uh, pretty concerned about where it could go. Yeah. He says it needs to be regulated, he needs to be, that governments need to be wise and democracies need to realise what, what might happen. Yep. If, if you had AI making decisions about, you know, kill switches and, and, and whether to fire. Yeah, how do you feed that in? Is it, you know... How do you uh, regulate it? Exactly, yeah. There are all sorts of potential downsides to unlimited development of mm. AI, and China seems to be a, a pretty prime example of, uh, of a country that is uh, proceeding hard and fast down this line. You're listening to Beyond Infinity. Beyond Infinity. Thanks for listening. Remember to visit our program website, beyondinfinity.com.au, where you'll find our complete back catalogue of over 600 podcasts. That's beyondinfinity.com.au. AI, uh, you know, we've been talking about it for, for years now and, and how, you know, where we can see the benefits of it on, in future. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've talked about previously is about um, health and the research that's done into disease discovery, et cetera, mm-hmm. or, or trying to sort of correlate all the different papers and look at you know, potential treatment options or trying to pick up all the, the different signatures and what's happening within uh, the human population uh, with, with all these diseases. And it can be really difficult, uh, very difficult for you know, the average doctor to try and get through all the new papers and, uh, and understand what's happening between each and all the different research that's occurring, which is now you know, bigger than it's ever been. And this yeah. is where AI has the potential to look at papers, look at the research that's, that's happening, and then deduce okay, well, this is what we expect to happen. Now, that also puts a lot of trust and faith into, you know, automated systems. And, you know, we have also, you know, talked about the you know, the caution that should be allayed by, um, you know, by relying on these types of systems. Sure. And so I guess one of the, the tests that uh, they can do and one thing that they have recently done is to look at older scientific papers and use a machine learning algorithm to 
to see if it could confirm the discoveries that we as humans had made um, after that. So what, what, they, uh, what these researchers have done from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, they used an algorithm called Word2Vec, and that's W-O-R-D, and the number 2, V-E-C. And what that did is it, it sifted through the scientific papers and looking for connections that humans may have missed because you know in, in a paper it might suggest well if we tried this then we might expect this result and there might be another paper that is completely on that subject but there hasn't been that connection that's there and, and this was looking at thermoelectric materials materials which convert heat to energy for you know heating or cooling applications okay now i didn't understand didn't have any idea what thermo this is the you know algorithm didn't understand what the word was actually meant so you know thermoelectric there was no definition that was provided to this ai right it basically just received some instructions, you know, to, to read through the papers and actually look for keywords and keywords that surrounded those words uh, to then try and make some connections. Mm-hmm. And so it took the papers, I think there was vocabulary of about half a million different words, and there was 3.3 million abstracts related to the science. And these were papers that were back in 2009. So, you know, published either by 2009 or before 2009. And what it wanted to do was assess all those papers and then see what it actually, you know, came out with. And what it discovered was it actually predicted a a best modern day thermoelectric material. And that was four years before it was actually discovered. So by running this algorithm on 2009 papers, it said, here, try this. Uh, This is the best guess. And that was the same material that was actually discovered in 2012 so what it's looking at is saving three to four years yeah. you know using this automated technology but had that you know those studies not occurred then it, that could have been potentially missed altogether it could have been even you know many more years after that so the, the, the point is you know we don't want to just let it run and say hey go and you know do everything we need to look back historically and test it mm. and then see what it comes up with or point us in the right direction to then do further research and we've one of the examples that we've talked about before is where they've they've taken iris scans and eye scans that have been collected by hospitals of hundreds of thousands of people mm. and then they've actually found ways to use ai to analyze people's eyes mm. to to get a, blood a, a picture of a picture of, of other yeah. of other uh, physical issues that they may have, mm-hmm. and that can sort of preempt or, or assist with diagnosing, with that, with um, with warning people, giving them say say okay, well look, we've we've been looking, at, we've got some data on your eyes, mm-hmm. which matched up with thousands of other people's data. We can actually now suggest has has got a likely increased likelihood of you know you having a, another physical problem, which you should probably look into, and you can preempt things. You can start taking treatments ahead of something actually becoming a problem for you. Yep. So there are plenty of examples of where his historical data can be mined to give an insight into uh, physical health, for example. But like a lot of the AI machine learning type systems, it's not something where it can necessarily explain its answer. So it, it might come back and say, here is uh, you know, some possible products that you could re- research more, or here's some potential health outcomes that you need to be wary of. But it doesn't necessarily say because of A, you will get B. It actually doesn't necessarily understand how to produce that information just yet. In some cases, there is limited uh, availability of that. But for the majority of cases it, it just looks at the research does its runs its algorithms and and looks at all the connected words and language and research makes its own determination and this is here you go but it can't give you that sort of reverse and say you need to look at this and then 
this and this and that's this. Right. And that's one of the shortcomings, yeah. and that's one of the things that there's moral objections to AI as well, that need for explainability on, on various levels. For example, the New Zealand government uh, we covered recently is is increasingly using using AI to do things like you know determine number of hospital beds it needs somewhere yeah. or you know what kind of insurance risk should be applied to a person given set of other circum- medical circumstances so, or even or even you know whether someone should be released on on probation from jail that kind of stuff leading those things without an explanation to AI uh, is is uh, possibly something we, we yeah, don't want to do as a society and, and, yeah because a computer is never really going to understand human emotion and mm. that. It's what uh, a lot of decisions can affect, whether it be you know good or a bad way. And so, I guess that's what we're always going to have to struggle with. You know, there's human emotion involved with with almost every decision we make. Thanks for listening to From the Vault, the best of the Beyond Infinity radio show. For our complete back catalogue, head to beyondinfinity.com.au. You can also engage with us on social media, Beyond Infinity RPPFM on Facebook or Infinity RPP on Twitter.